Welcome to Manufacturing Hub. Very exciting conversation today with one of one of actually I guess two of my good friends because both both Jim and Vlad are currently on here. Excited to continue our standardization in automation conversation. We've got Jim on who will introduce and he can reintroduce himself in just a minute. But we're going to really focus around data. We're going to talk to him about data models. We're gonna we're literally going to talk to one of the experts who he and his team do this stuff all day, every day and ask, are there values of standardization in data and what do those look like? And I've got a fairly good idea that the answer to at least a couple of those questions are going to be yes. Before we kick off, we do want to thank Siemens for their continued sponsorship of this theme, helping to drive us in the direction of standardization, as well as the continued support of all of the community. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome everyone to Manufacturing Hub. We are episode 124. My name is Dave. This guy sitting below me on camera is Vlad. We've got a very special guest, Jim Gavigan, who is chief time series data aficionado and everything else <laughs> over at Industrial Insight. One of the people I love to have conversations with. And honestly, Jim, so I was looking. You, this is your third time on the show. You were yep. here on all the way back on episode eight, as well as episode 93. And I'm going to be honest, I spent like 20 minutes. I'm like, Jim had to have been in there somewhere. And then I'm remembering, I think I said something to the effect of, Jim, we promised to have you on again before the next 100 shows lap, and lapse. And we did, it. We, we did it. And we are always very happy to have you here. So, Jim, cool. thank you for being here. Welcome. Welcome back. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be back. And if anybody knows Dave, I got coffee. So I brought it because of Dave today. I usually don't drink coffee in the afternoon. And here's the thing. The thing I gave you a hard time last time. I still think I'm behind Jordan Humphreys. I still think you've had him on more than me. Or, I think Jordan has been on. I think he's you. three. So I'm catching yes. him today. All right. That's good. I, I, I think that there's a very small group. So you've been on three times. Bobby yeah. Cole, who was our guest last week, has been on three yeah. times. I think Jordan has been, Jordan Humphreys has been on three times, giving us the, I don't yeah. know, once or twice a year update on the recruiting side. Yeah. And I think Zach Stank has been on three times over the course of a variety of different shows, including yeah. a live show that, elite, that we've had. Elite company, elite company. I like it. <laughs> yes, very elite company. As, I, as we were saying, as we were getting ready for the show, there are a few people, at least the four of you and a number of others included, who it's like, we could go have a conversation with you guys every week or every month, but then it would be, hey, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I'm Dave. Yeah. This is Vlad, and here is one of our five guests that we ran yeah. Robin. But no, Jim, yeah. we're super happy to have you on. Could I ask you if people have managed to miss your previous episode, if you can give everyone just a bit of the highlights of a little bit more of who you are and what the team at Industrial yeah. Insight does? Sure. So currently, I'm, I'll start at the current. What we do is we help industrial companies analyze their time series data. And actually, we get into other data other than time series. We're doing some stuff for people in, say, Power BI that's more their financial data. Really, we like to consider ourselves data experts. Time series data is our foray. We get asked to do other things and the skills kind of align. My background actually, though, is controls engineering. That's what I did for most of my career. Start out as a vibration analyst for three months. That's a whole sorted story of how I got out of that. We'll have to do that on the show one day, tell that story. It does involve gunfire and being in the hood in Memphis, and I had to get out of that. But I got into controls engineering and cut my teeth on like Modicom PLCs and Siemens DC drives and Magnatech AC drives and just got to see a lot of stuff in my first six or seven years. 
And I worked for Rockwell Automation actually in sales. And then I was a technical consultant for them. I worked for a large system integrator out of the Memphis area, headquartered out of the Memphis area. And they've got a bunch of locations now. They've really grown. And then uh, I worked for OSISoft for a few years before going back to that system integrator and then starting my own company with Industrial Insight. Came up, like I said, through the controls ranks and I've always been a data and stats nerd. And so it fit like what I like to do. And I guess I've been in the field, this field for 10 years now. I think 2013 was when I got into it. I got into sales at OSISoft. So yeah. Someone who's, Jim, if you don't mind me asking, mm -hmm. not as much familiar with OSISoft, could you maybe paint a better picture what uh, the tr I guess the transition and how they got to where they are today also. What about the Pi system and like, exactly. Yeah. When I got there in 13, they were in a little bit of a transition period, right? They'd always been known as an industrial data historian, right? So you hook this thing up and it collects data out of all your sensors, stores it in a database, lets you pull it back and do trending and things of that nature, right? They were really trying to transition themselves into calling themselves a data infrastructure, right? Versus just a plant historian. And the way that they were reframing everything was they had built this tool called asset framework, which allowed you to put all your tags in a hierarchical model, map them to actual English names of, instead of the P and ID tag naming convention that you were typically used to seeing in a data historian allowed you to map it into English, build calculations, build events, do notifications. And then they got into some web-based visualization outside of the old thick client of, of process book. And really it was a natural fit for me to move into that space. When I was at LSI, we had done a bunch of work for a, a major manufacturer in, in a batch process and Pi allowed us to solve a problem we had been fighting for a year and a half in seven business days. Wow. And just because we could see the data and we could understand, oh, these are the batches that are going over. Okay. What was going on in those? What's so unique about them? And we would go look at the trends and say, oh, we're hitting feed rates we had never hit before. And so we had some code in the PLC that, you know, started turning equipment off and slowing the feed down as you were hitting the end of the batch or the end of that first made major ingredient. And it allowed us to hit the target much more often. And literally they landed a new customer and we helped them build a new facility. And I was like, wow, this data thing just made two companies millions of dollars. And so that's really how I guess I got started was from that. And then when I got a phone call from a recruiter that said, Hey, they need you to sell pie in Tennessee and Arkansas, which is, I was in Memphis at the time. It was a pretty easy sell for me. I was like, yeah, I can evangelize that story because I've used that software, done a lot with it to help actually help customers. And man, I can evangelize that story. So it's kind of where it came from. But does that help? And I would say the common, the data, absolutely, absolutely. And that's where I wanted to get to because I think that there's a lot of conversations and we've had them together with Dave around hardware, around software. And I think that those problems in general are understood, although there's some nuances, but I would say like on the data side, I think that although in our industry, there's still a lot of debates around which protocol to use, maybe which tool or software to use. I think pretty much we all agree that there is a need for more data in order to make business decisions, right? I think that, 100%. but there are a lot of challenges to getting that data from the plant floor. And I think that people have, or I guess enterprises have been trying for a number of years. There's obvious I want to say roadblocks or 
hurdles that they need to overcome. Could you paint us a picture of maybe what you're seeing in terms of getting that data and what kind of maybe conversations or challenges you're discussing maybe with your customers or in manufacturing in general when it comes to acquiring data, which I think is the problem in which we need more standardization? Yeah, it used to be a lot more difficult when you didn't have as much networking. One, or like when I got into the business, if you had any PLCs network to anything, it was Modbus Plus, because I grew up with Modicon, which was a proprietary protocol. I had to have a, a card that's stuck in my PCM slot, right? And it was like one megabaud. And so you just didn't really have the infrastructure in place. Now, almost every industrial company has all their PLCs networked on a standard protocol like Ethernet or a standard wire, essentially. And that helps a ton right? Because that was a major problem even 15 years ago, right? Even maybe even 10 years ago, but now most things are networked relatively well. And with OPC and MQT and a few other protocols, you can pretty much connect to about anything. One of the things we always used to sell at OSI soft was we built over 450 interfaces. You need to get to a beta gauge in a paper mill. We probably have an interface for it. If you need to get to some weird thing out on the plant floor, we probably wrote an interface for it, right? Now, pretty much everything talks OPC, MQT, or DNP3, Modbus. There, there's something relatively common that you can connect to it, generally. So connectivity is not as big of an issue. Now it's really, what's the right platform that I should use? Pi was actually very big in the heavy industries, like we used to joke around, we would, we're just chasing smokestacks, right? Because we're looking for power plants, paper mills, chemical plants, refineries. We, we had what we were looking for, right? But then you have these little food and beverage plants, these small like packaging plants. I was talking to a guy the other day who's going to work for Sunoco and I called on a Sunoco plant that made tube stock for the Pringles cans for the, mm. for Pringles, right? They don't have the kind of money to throw at maybe a pie system, right? Or it's harder to justify it or the process itself, like doesn't necessarily lend itself because you're not measuring flows and pressures and temperatures and things like that. It's more how many widgets have I made and it's super high speed. So the value of it is a little bit different. And, and then also you're like, I can't afford to spend a hundred, $150,000 or more on a pie system. So that's been still a little bit of a challenge, but there's a lot of other like lower cost systems out there that are super functional that I think you almost don't have an excuse anymore. You should be able to get the data in something like, even if it's you're an ignition customer and you hook it up to their historian, which, you know, is pretty limited. You can jump up from there into say Canary or somebody like that. It makes a super functional, but super cost-effective system. And then still the granddaddy is still Pi. There's been some others around. Aspen has IP21, but that's generally in where we see that one generally is in a chemical plant or a refinery or somewhere where they're using the other Aspen software, all the modeling and APC software that, that they have they built some integration to that. So it makes more sense for them to just use it. But my goodness, you don't, and even Rockwell has an offering, like they brand labeled Pi many years ago, I think 2007, 2008, when I think they're still deploying that. 
and it's actually at a lower cost than a full-blown pie system so it's bundled different but it's and it's a couple years old but because i had to put the factory top services wrap around it but you have there's almost no excuse anymore you should be able to get data into something so let me ask you i guess a follow-up question again for those who are maybe considering a data aggregation system for their plant or looking at like different solutions i certainly had many conversations with engineering level personnel that is asked by their manager, hey, we would like to monitor a system. Maybe at the beginning, it's something basic. Let's receive email alerts when a certain pump goes down. But to bring us back to a question, maybe when you're talking of deploying a Pi system at the plant level, what does that typically entail, right? Is there a step where you need to audit what kind of instrumentation you have, then you tie into your PLCs, you have to deploy a local server, maybe a cloud-based server. What does that look like in general it's changing like in the olden days we would have we would typically install the interface software because their osi software would sell you an interface typically that would go on the same machine that you say your opc servers on because the interface is just a client to the opc just like your hmi already was and then that typically is down at the controls network you typically would put the server the pi server components in dmz right so that you can control traffic, right? One-way traffic out of the controls network into that. And then you would poke a couple holes in the firewall to the business network so that people could go retrieve data from the server. And you're right now it's, oh, I, it gets a lot more complicated because it's, I have this supplier who has this super specific domain expertise and I need to share 5,000 of my 50,000 tags with them, but I need to do it securely. And I don't want them, I don't want to poke a bunch of holes in my firewall so that they can stream data. And now you are having to get what is a cloud-based solution that potentially I can share my data with another vendor who provides expertise to me. And that's a, a little bit of a challenge now. There's some ways certainly to get there. OSIsoft and now Aviva have worked on some ways to do that. Canary's got some ways to do that. But I'll tell you another company that I forgot to mention is the guys over data park, they have come a long way as well. And they're making a lot of headway in some plants mm -hmm. beyond where they've been. They've been traditionally in the pulp and paper industry, but they're showing up a lot of places and they're good folks too. We know them as quite well as well. When you've been in this kind of business this long and you do what we do, you get to meet all the players and uh, there's some good ones out there. There's literally no excuse to not have something, but, but yeah, to your point, getting that data securely to say another vendor or a supplier is a little, still a little tricky. can be done, but still requires some thought. Dave, what are your thoughts? I, I think this is really interesting. Jim, I want to follow up on a question that I feel we had to have asked you last time. Maybe a couple of years ago, OSI soft sold and they became part of Viva, which is now, I get this mixed part up. Part of Schneider. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Schneider has now purchased Aviva. So now OSIsoft is under the Schneider banner. Do you think that changes the landscape very much, either on people opting as to, to which historian they want to use, or maybe the direction process historians moving in the next handful of years? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it changes the landscape pretty dramatically. How? I'm not sure yet. Okay. There's look, there's some customers that are excited because now they have another portfolio of products that if not today, we'll certainly be able to integrate in with their Pi system data. That's what they're working toward. 
and they've got there there are various levels where they can do that or not do that. So there's some customers that are excited about that opportunity. The traditional wonderware customers, some that were using some of their pattern recognition software. Now it's like kind of one-stop shop for my SCADA, my pattern recognition and my historian. There, there's some people excited about that. And there's some other ones that are like, I just really don't like the way things are going. As if anyone had bought OSI soft, if Siemens had bought them, Emerson, Rockwell, any of them had bought them. There's always going to be those people, probably me included a little bit, because I saw the, I saw OSI soft really at its peak. You don't want that to change because that culture was super unique. That was a very customer focused culture at that company. And it changed not long after I got there because Pat was getting older. God rest his soul. He passed away, I don't know, three or four months ago, but he didn't really have a successor that was going to work. He had tried a couple of different things and they didn't work out. So you knew at some point it was, he was probably going to have to sell it. That was the part we were all dreading. Yep. And, uh, and I think, I think it has changed enough to where it's, there's going to be some people that, that leave. There's enough stuff going now, I think we'll talk about this later because I know you're going to ask me about predictions. I think there's going to be some major changes in this market. So I would agree with that. And I would agree with the statement. I think it was a very good statement of regardless of who bought it, things would change and people would no longer maybe feel exactly the same that way. I'm sure it is, it is better for some groups and some organizations. And sure. I feel that everyone who really appreciated the fact that I was, I don't know, as quote unquote independent as any organization as large as they are, who has agreements with most major vendors. I think they were very that, agnostic. Yep. Absolutely. And so I think that it will be interesting to see what happens as we move forward. And OSI Soft and, and Canary Labs, I think they both started mid 80s around the same point mm -hmm. in time. And so it's been interesting to watch the di different trajectories of those two organizations yeah. grow. And it will be interesting as they continue on to onto assumably different trajectories and assumably working with this different customers and use cases. But I kind of want to go slightly move the conversation again toward, towards those customers and use cases. So the goal of what we're talking about is standardization in automation. And Jim, you know that we've talked a lot about the hardware side. We've talked yep. about screens. I want to get your take on the standardization from the data level. And if you want to talk about that, or if you want to talk about maybe what are the normal initial conversations you have with new customers of them saying, hey, Jim, we know we need to do a better job with our data, but where do we start? Ooh. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about standardization first, because as I was talking about with the idea of this asset framework idea, right, is it started to let us build a hierarchical data model for, say, an individual plant. And the things that you learn or that you could do with that is if you have common equipment, you're an international paper or you're Georgia Pacific, right? You're a paper company. You have a lot of common equipment across a bunch of your plants, right? So you have the ability to start templatizing how you were going to look at certain equipment, certain processes, things of that nature, right? And that really helped because then it didn't really matter if I'm hooking up to a 35-year-old Provox system or a brand new Yokogawa DCS that I just got commissioned last week. 
I can standardize how that looks to someone and how I present that data to someone by using this hierarchical model and building standard calculations and building standard events and things of that nature. And that's really where I felt like that was super powerful. And that's really why I got into doing what I do now is I think a lot of customers were struggling to see that as a potential use case as and I remember I was at a chemical site and they said, we have eight distillation columns. You mean I can build a template and they're all unique, but I could build a template that, that has the same KPIs and still keep every, make everything unique. Like eventually you have like a base template. Here's all the stuff that I have on every distillation column and then have eight individual templates for the eight different use cases that I have, but it still allows me to present the data the same way to people, the same kind of KPIs to people. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying you can do. And they're like, oh, wow. They still didn't fully get it. And they still didn't fully understand what that really meant to them. And we've probably helped that company. They've been probably our biggest, they've been our biggest customer year over year. We've saved them millions. I guarantee you we have. And some of it was just being able to do data modeling, doing calculations, doing events and presenting the data in such a way that people could actually take action on it. So then the thing that you have to be able to do though, is say, okay, I did this at this one facility. Can I take these same techniques, these same techniques and apply them elsewhere? And that's when you have to step back and think about, okay, what if I don't have exactly the same equipment? What if they're different? What are those main KPIs? How can I do this in such a way that I have some kind of a standard where we can all get on the same page, but yet still maintain the uniqueness for that particular plant. They may want to know more about that equipment and what's going on with it. And so that's usually the challenge now is how can I give the plant or the mill what they want, but give the corporate people what they want too at the same time, because at least like with Pi, with Flow, trying to think of anybody else who's really doing, I haven't gotten into the data part, like what they're doing. And I know they have an asset model too. Canary was another one where you can build an asset model and standardize like how equipment looks to, to everybody. That's like really important. And I think that's still something that's not used enough. We still run into a lot of customers that are like, we don't know how to spell AF. What are you talking about? Joe, coming from the control side, I'm sure that you run into a lot of challenges when it comes to the PLC code or the software into which you're tying in not being standard. And I, as I understand, you can obviously manipulate and massage the data once it gets to your layer and obviously put mm -hmm. them in the right buckets. Yep. Do you still encounter a lot of challenges where you have to almost manually go into those programs and understand and decipher what was programmed in by whomever put that equipment in. And it could even be the replica of the same machine <laughs> built by a slightly different company that programmed it just differently enough for you to have to do that. Not particularly. I've only looked at a couple of times I have I ever looked at PLC code or DCS configuration with anyone or by myself. There've been a few cases where like we were trying to build out say a batch event frame and we would just have some status flags and, or it would be, we would just see here's the step number and it'd be like 10, 12, 14. You're like, what does this mean? 
and someone would have to go in and understand that. And then I would say, okay, 13 almost never happens, but what does it mean? Because I've seen it happen in five batches in the last year. And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> Let me go look mm -hmm. at that. That's the only real, like real time we've had to look at it. The biggest problem we typically have, and this is why, and I'm glad Dave talked me into this when he was helping me out with marketing, was doing these data fidelity studies, like getting the data quality right. I'm working with a customer now. It's funny, I thought a 320,000 tag system was a big one, but I'm actually working on one that's 950,000 tags right now. And the data quality, and the problem was they're not throwing much data away. So you imagine how many gigs of data they're storing every day. And so I want to pull up a trend of this for a year and they're grabbing it every second and hardly throwing any of it away. And you just start doing the math, like, okay, was that 86,400 points a day times 365 days? I want to pull that up on a trend. And oh, by the way, I've got 15 other values at the same time that I want to pull up that kind of data with. Yeah. Go get another cup of coffee, go talk to somebody else <laughs> in another cube for 30 minutes and then come back and maybe it'll be ready. That's one thing we've been trying to help people with. And sometimes what we run into is, oh, that's like an older DCS. We can only get data out of that every 20, 30, 40 seconds. Otherwise we like tax the communications of it to even be able to run the process that it's running. That's still a challenge, believe it or not, not as big of one. People are continuing to modernize, but yeah, we still, data quality is a bigger problem, but typically we don't ever have to get down in the code. We can usually see what's going on. How do you define a little bit better like data quality to help everyone understand like, what does that mean when you have <laughs> again, conversations, I want to say, with non maybe super technical managers of these facilities? What does it mean? So I know some people are, I've been watching the, some of the comments and I know some people are driving, but I'm going to talk with my hands a little bit, which I, I can't, Dave knows me, I have to talk with my hands. But the problem is when especially like a lot of times on a DCS or a PLC system, you have a trending, some kind of way to trend a value, right? And you see it doing this, right? But then you go look in your data historian and it's a straight line, right? That's a problem because that's not really reflective of the process, right? That's what that used to be the typical problem is the IT guy would come yell at you and say, you're hogging up too much network bandwidth. You're hogging up too much hard drive space. You can't store that much data. Now that's not really a problem. So everybody's like, turn all the compression algorithms off and give me everything. And they don't know what that means either. And that can be almost as bad. So now, and I always talk about this, like in terms of say a temperature transducer, right? And I was just, one of the things I presented to this 950,000 tag site, and it was their corporate site <laughs> was, okay, you have a, one of your common instrument types is a K type thermocouple. Okay. The accuracy of that is 2.2 degrees Celsius or, and I can't remember what the percentage of the range it was, or which is like around right at four degrees, I think it was 3.96 degrees. So if you have a K-type thermocouple that you want to store all the data from, and it moves two tenths of a degree, a lot moves around that for hours on end, is that real data? Maybe not. Now, as I told them, I tend to tell people to store, if you're going to err on collecting a little too much data, you can always filter it down, but don't store everything. And too many people think that's still a good thing to do. You talk to the clouds providers, they're like, oh no, please store everything. No, 
you, you really don't want to do that. And each historian package handles things a little bit different. Like I, I think about like the guy, I guarantee the guys at data park, if they were listening to this, they're like rolling their eyes at me right now because they actually will store it all. They actually have a server in their network or in kind of in their deployment that is keeping all the raw data. But if you pull up a year for a trend, you may be getting hourly averages for that. And then as you zoom in, maybe it's one minute average, maybe then it's a 30 second average. And then you get down to the actual raw data. They're like, don't throw any of it away. That's a way to handle it. The Pi system chose to do lossy compression. I can't remember what Canary does. They have a time value quality and they do some interesting things with that so that you're not necessarily storing all the data all the time. It is something you have to handle. But to me, what you want is the right amount of data that represents the process signal for every signal you have in your historian system. If you only need 50 points to reproduce this trend, don't store 5,000. There's just no need to do it. If you really want to store 500, okay. But if 50 is not enough for you and you're like, I feel like I lose a little bit. Okay, fine. Store 500 of them, but don't store all 5,000 of them that you need or that they came in raw. Right. So that's something that we kind of work with customers on because the problem you have is one of two things, right? Is you're building out calculations, you're doing investigative work and doing big data polls or you're <clears throat> building power bi dashboards or something like that and you need a lot of data it can really put a drag on the system if you're never compressing anything out or if you're just keeping everything that you that you accumulate on the flip side is if you're filtering too much of it out you miss these little disturbances in your process that may be really important to you and I've seen that happen too. I've seen people filter out things. They've seen me present this when there was a steam flow at a chemical plant and <clears throat> on the screen, there's 586 values, I think that came in raw and they'd only archived two of them. And I always ask somebody, I said, if I totalize this steam flow for these two hours, based on the archive data, do I get the right answer? Not even because it was like way up here and you're running like way down here for most of the time. And they're like, oh, Jim, it's only 29 to 32 on the screen. I'm like, yeah, but that's thousand pounds an hour. So if I miss, if I totalize the wrong number, I tell you using 32,000 pounds an hour and really you're only using about 30, 30. And I, we add that up over the course of a year, I've really lied to you. And getting that right balance is pretty key. And that's a hard thing to standardize because it. I've got a couple of work. I've got a couple of questions on a few of those points, Jim. But I guess to bring this back a little bit as to like why we're trying to do this, all of this work, and you've just given us a good example. But ultimately, I think <clears> that the picture painted online sometimes is that you want to get your OE metrics and that's going to solve many of your problems. But the reality is you need a lot of this more, I don't want to say profound, but more detailed data yeah. that allows you to see deficiencies. Could you maybe give us like a couple of examples? I know you've given one <laughs> on the last statement, but what can you find or what can you oh, achieve that is again, in no way possible by just knowing the OE? 
Yeah, I've seen a couple of discussions recently on LinkedIn. I can't believe the amount of noise that people are still making about OEE. Yeah, it's a metric you really want. The problem is, okay, if my OEE is 50.50 or 50%, however you want to look at it. Okay, why? Is it excessive downtime? Is it because I don't know how to schedule my equipment? Is it because I have crappy equipment that won't run? Is it that I don't have enough people to run the equipment? Is it that I have crappy supply chain and they're providing me garbage that I can't run reliably? Is it that I have, I make poor quality because I have a crappy supply chain? Just because it says 0.5 doesn't tell you anything, right? You need the components. Then you need to be able to drill down. Like we, we've got a little project we've been doing inside the Pi system. We could do it other ways for this customer Pi system works, but we're just tracking downtime. Right. And literally for them to start, it's, is it scheduled? Is it unscheduled? And I can't remember. There's three buckets, three main buckets that they wanted in. Right. And then maybe two or three buckets under that. Right. Because they just want a big picture because in, in most cases for them, it's unscheduled. It's, it, or it's that they're not scheduling themselves. Right. They have all this equipment out there and they're not running it. They're not scheduling it correctly. That's what everybody feels like. And they just have no way to prove it until you start to really measure it. And so, yeah, OE is a part of it, but then you have to drill down into the whys. And then you get into continuous process equipment. Sometimes measuring OE is like kind of tricky or batch process. It gets tricky depending on lots of things, upstream processes, downstream processes, they may be your problem. So, okay, I'm picking on R46 here, reactor number 46, but the problem is it's really downstream of that that can't keep running to allow R46 to do its job. So it's, there's so much to that. And what's funny, I say, I've been doing industrial insight for six and a half years, going on seven. We've only touched OE a few times. There's so many other key metrics that we mess with, like a big one we've been talking to people about recently is like real-time chemical usage, real-time energy usage. That's how I measured in OEE. Like I can have an OEE of world-class one is still what in the eights? 85. Maybe? Yeah. 85. Somewhere in that neighborhood. And if I'm using way too much chemical or way too much like raw materials or way too much energy to get there, that may not be cost effective for me. So it doesn't tell you the whole picture at all. And a lot of things like, matter of fact, one of the reasons I was kind of running a little bit late to this was how we were working on, Nick was working on this wildly important goals thing for one of our customers. And it's 14 metrics across their plant. And eight of them were chemical usage and six of them had to do with energy. <laughs> and we were trying to figure out like ways to present that to him in a standard way. But one of the things that we're, we have to also think about, and one of the things he hadn't quite fully thought through it is I said, we have to find a way to present this in a standard way because we have to do this at other plants like this. And those 14 metrics may be different, but we have to have a standard approach. And we have to have a standard like display on how we're going to present it to them that we can take to, to another site. We just plug in their metrics. Now, the underlying metrics, there were some cases like he was showing me, the metric would be literally the pie tag, right? That would be the today metric. Mm -hmm. Then there were other ones that 
you know, in the way they had measured it before was in a spreadsheet. It was, you'd get a printer page and you'd fill up a page with all the calculations linked in all the different sheets of that spreadsheet. So it could literally be very complex or it could be very, very simple. But the thing is, if you can get it to where it's say, okay, this is my calculated value, my month to date value, year to date value, last year's value, two years ago value, right? Then I can display it the same way every single time, no matter what the metrics is. So those things you have to work on from a standard, because I know we're talking standardization. That's the challenge. Like when we go to the next site, they may have 20 metrics or 10 metrics that are completely different, calculated totally different. But we're going to be able to take the same approach on how we present it and how they take action on it. it has nothing to do with OE. That's a key. None of it. And I would say that's a very important step, right? Because I think you've mentioned that you were standardizing across like eight stacks and you were able to make templates for them. And I think that ultimately all of this and what you've just described across multiple sites boils down to being able to compare apples to apples. Yes. If you have five facilities or five stacks, or obviously there's a different level of who's going to be responsible for that. But if the director of operations sees different facilities with different metrics that report in very non-standardized ways, it becomes really difficult to make any business decisions. And it's a very important step in this entire process. And that's what's funny. I remember my good friend, Rick Smith, he, and I can say this because he's talked about this in presentations. He worked for international paper and has for 40 years now. I think he's celebrated 40 years now. Yeah. He's, he's a dying breed and he's, he's just an amazing guy. Just he's amazing at what he does, but he's also just a really good dude too. But he would talk like they're doing the digester calculation for K-Mir digesters, which is a continuous digester where they're taking the wood chips and using cooking liquors and cooking it down into pulp, right? Where they can start to make paper out of it. And he said, <laughs> one of the issues they had is he gets, say, there are 10 subject matter experts on K-Mir digesters from across the company, put them all in a room and say, okay, what's the digester calculation? How do I standard measure how effective a digester is doing its job? And you get 12 different answers because two people had, you could do it this way or that way. That's sometimes the big challenge is what is the standard? And no one can agree. At some point though, I think this comes to a saying that I used to see at some point you have to shoot the engineer and just start production. You just have to say, all right, whether all of you agree, this is the way we're going to measure it. And this is how we're going to do it. Okay. I know you guys can argue like why my way is better, but this is what we're going to do. <laughs> and so it doesn't, I got Dave tickled, but that's a lot of times what you have to do is say, you know what? Yeah, we don't all agree, but we have to have something that we agree upon enough that it tells us what we need to do to know and measure everyone the same way. And it's hard. That's the hard part sometimes. I love this. I would say that I laughed almost through the entirety of Jim's statement, and I'm not sure we've ever offended Vlad more than saying sometimes we just have to shoot the engineer. But hey, here's the thing. I resemble that remark because I'm, remember, I was a controls engineer. And I'm like, no, it's not ready yet. I still have a little, uh, 10 more rungs to put in here. That's going to be great. And they're falling. Jim, we got to run, dude. Like we have to run this machine. Get out of the way. We're turning the button. We're turning the switch on and we're going. We're turning it on, and if it runs, it works, and uh, that's how it is. So and, it better, it. And, it, and it better work. Like, we're knocking uh, you out of the way. So we have some people to thank, and then we're going we're gonna to come back to this yep. conversation. But we want to thank 
the folks at Siemens for sponsoring this entirety, the entirety of the standardization and automation theme. Sustainability, product customization, digitalization, and new techniques and competitors, manufacturing continues to grow more complex. Standardization is our answer to these challenges. The more standard technology, systems, processes, and interfaces become, the faster and more cost-effectively you can drive your automation and digitalization forward. How can you boost your flexibility and competitiveness? What probably happens when you change the machine supplier and then have to integrate automation systems from different vendors? Without standardization, you need more employees with different skills. You lose flexibility and time on the integration process and have to expect longer downtimes. With standardization, you avoid these problems and gain both flexibility and competitive advantages. Want to learn more? Please check out Siemens.com, a whole bunch of slashes and standardization. We'll go ahead and post that link in all of the comments. If you guys are listening in podcast form, you guys can also go ahead and check that via the show notes. And again, we want to thank Siemens for sponsoring the entirety of this theme, your continued support, and all of the Siemens folks currently in the comments for this. Thank you guys for being here. I do want to say we've had a super active chat so far today. If you guys are new here, it's our goal to always have an active chat. If you guys have questions, please feel free to go ahead and drop some questions in the chat. We will go ahead and put Jim on the spot. If you guys have been severely disappointed, if you don't ask me any questions and don't put me on the spot, that's the fun part. I was going to say, Jim, we've got like a couple of dozen comments already. Just no apparently difficult questions for you. Not yet. Not yet, but that's why I do want to let everyone know. Please feel free to go ahead and talk. I know Vlad Vlad asks tough questions. He asks a lot of great questions. And the thing I always feel bad about is Vlad probably has 10 more questions that we never get to on these. I feel bad. On on each topic. On each topic. Yeah, he's loaded. Vlad didn't even get to argue with you about how you need to collect more data. And Jim, how dare you only collect once a second data? I need once a millisecond data in order to be able to go figure those things out. There, that may there be, are that, times you need. That may be a, a whole other episode when we Jim, bring Jim on for the fourth time and Vlad can go argue that until he is blue in the face. It, but, it, yeah, it depends. There are absolutely those times. Like you're trying to figure out why your mill stand and your steel mill isn't reacting or your drive on your paper machine. 100% you're right. A lot of the stuff that we are looking for don't change that quickly. Yep, absolutely. I want to go back to the conversation that that we were having. I I had a really awesome question, and then you said that sometimes you just have to shoot the engineer and run. But I kind of want to ask the question slightly differently. Let's go back up for just a moment. I guess we were talking about OE. We were talking about a bunch of other metrics. For someone who does a fair amount of work in and amongst OE almost every year for longer than Jim has known me, one of the things that frustrates me is the lack of standardization just within the quote-unquote O metric. And I think that you brought that up really well, Jim. And the pain point to me, less the, hey, each of the Fortune 500 have a slightly different way they calculate OEE, but if you move from one plant to the other... It's all the same. Yeah, you know, This is how they do it. Yep. And so for me... That's okay. It's mm-hmm. one of the for me. That's one of the parts that makes OE a less than perfect calculation is because there's some amount of artistry in it. We know what the information is, but everyone comes to the information slightly differently. As you talked about well, on the digester calculation. As you said, it's certainly a starting point, right? It gives you an idea. Is every am I making good quality? Am I running at rate? And am I running? Right. It gives you that. But it always leaves you wanting more. You always have to drill down more. 
that's the one kind of inherent weakness of rolling everything up into one number. So it just leaves you like, okay, what do I need to go attack? And that's Absolutely. why you have to drill down into the components of it. I would certainly agree with that. I guess for as many organizations that have in theory standardized that or standardized other important metrics, there are probably 10 times as many organizations that each facility runs slightly differently. And it's difficult to take the same metric and go compare it from one facility to the next. Sometimes I've seen from one line to the next. I guess as I look at that as an op opportunity when we talk about standardization in automation, I look at the standardizing how we go do these calculations as a good opportunity. Have you been on the customers that you work with, Jim? Do you see from mill to mill or plant to plant, they have slightly different ways they calculate this? And that's an opportunity to standardize within the organization. Or are you seeing that most of the time the organizations you work with have fairly standard kind of corporate data structures and corporate data? This is how we're going to go do calculations. It highly varies. We don't get a lot into OE. We're on the periphery of it because they're asking us to do all the stuff that's not OE <laughs> typically. Because there's more, there's more to the story. And a lot of times they buy just a package software that you feed in the downtime, you feed in your quality metrics and you feed in whatever you need and it spits all that out. It's usually ancillary to us. What we've seen is, yeah, everybody's does things slightly different. You know I mean? Like I think about in the large chemical plant that we call on. My suspicion is the way they do it there is different than they do it at some other places. But they have a unique facility. That's the only place that really that's like that's that they make that set of product. So it's not like you have to compare something the same way. But if you're a big paper company or if you're a food manufacturer that makes a lot of the same components or same types of things, what I've seen is generally they agree whether it's the standard OE calculation that you can look up online or not, or whether they've tweaked it a little bit. Typically they're pretty standard. There's some other things that they kind of monkey with. And you, you, we all know the nature of people is they're going to monkey with the metrics to benefit themselves. If they're paid off OE, they're going to find a way to run close to 8.85. They're going to find ways to do it. Whether it's accurate or not, that's another question. But that's sometimes when you break something down to it. And I saw someone comment on this or talk about this on LinkedIn just today. And that's, and I was thinking the same thing. I was like, yeah, I mean, I, re I remember even working for other companies and they measure you on billable hours or something. You're going to figure out ways to monkey with that metric to make sure that it's to your advantage as the engineer. Absolutely. So. You know, that, that's the thing you have to worry about if you're in management is, am, are these numbers that I'm seeing a true number or are they afraid to bring me the true number? Has someone monkeyed with the metrics for their own benefit? If you're savvy, you should be able to figure it out because it should, something shouldn't be right elsewhere. This plant's running at a 0.85, but why do they never make any money? There'll be some things that, that come out. Did I answer your question? Absolutely. No, I would agree. I think metrics <laughs> are only as good as the honesty that we have within the facility. And if we go and to, to your point, pay people to seem like the OE is potentially better than it is, then maybe we've got a bunch of quality post line issues. And that's why we don't ever make money. 
but none of the quality gets pulled off during it. And almost no one goes back and puts rework that is discovered at the back of the line into the negative OE numbers of quality. And that's why it always looks very I'll good. You, I, I'll give you a funny one to that point is I was working at Unilever back in 2013, helping them start up a Klondike ice cream bar line. And I don't remember why, but it was like, we need to try to run all four lanes on this machine or on this line today and see if we can actually do it. Let's see if we can keep everything running. We did. We got through, literally did the Newt Rockney speech with everybody. I'm the controls engineer who's a contractor and I'm like doing the Newt Rockney speech at 6 a.m. Cheering everybody on. We're going to do it. You just tell us what you need. But we did it and we were pretty proud of it. And then the next day, I'm, we're doing the same thing. About two o'clock, plant manager comes out to me. Larry, he's just like yelling at me. I'm like, what? And he said, do you know how much waste you guys created yesterday? <laughs> no. And so he tells me, and he's just giving me the right act. And it, this guy was, he was a piece of work. I loved him. I loved working with him. But he could be difficult. And this was one of those moments where he was being difficult. But I don't blame him. Because he's just looking at the numbers, holy crap, like, he just wasted a bunch of stuff. And I, I could have sworn he was the one that told me, like, we need to run all four lanes and see if we can do this. I'm like, yep. what do you want me to do? So I did it. You didn't say make good product. You just said make product. And I actually, in all fairness, I thought we did. I didn't realize we wasted that much. But the thing I'll never forget, I told him, I put it right back on him. And I said, okay, Larry, it's two o'clock, an hour till shift change. Guess what? You're going to yell at me again tomorrow because we haven't changed our behavior today. You mean to tell me, you can't tell me what the waste numbers are until two o'clock the next afternoon? Your data system's broken. You need to be able to tell me like when I come in and yeah. then I can change something. And I was talking to a guy Monday and they can't even do OEE because there's some running AS400. They can't even do OEE till six weeks or two weeks after like month close. They can't do OE for July until maybe mid-August. That's Why? wild. Because they're, they're because of all the closing out and the it's all in some AS400 and it's just, they're so backwards. I, I asked the same question and it's just, like, yeah, that's not a good situation. You should be able to have that in near real time, in, in near real time. Quality, a lot of times is an after the fact, depending on what it is you're making. It can be an after the fact kind of thing. Especially if the process you're measuring is like an intermediate or a first line process, because what you don't know is, am I producing something that downstream is not of good quality and really I'm the cause of that. So there is some delay, right? But it should be relatively near real time. But yeah, that, that's not where every company lives. As I found out, I was stunned at what I heard. I couldn't believe it. I don't know. I can't wrap my head around what needs to happen in six weeks for them to get that OE. But that's two weeks after the end of the month, good. right? Yeah, so it, I, I calculate on a monthly basis, but it takes them right. that long because they have some old mainframe and they're yep. still punching a bunch of crap in. It takes them two weeks to close two weeks to close the month, and then they can say, "Here's all the numbers." Or it has to do something with the financial system, and maybe the financial system is also yeah. tied in there. And that's why they've got month close and maybe month close just takes them two weeks, which is yep. an awfully long time for month close before they can actually say, this is, these are the numbers we did and potentially extrapolate OE out of those numbers. 
Well, no, I, I agree. At that point, we've certainly missed real time by, I don't know, at least six weeks. We've certainly missed real time by about six weeks. Yeah. What do you think, Vlad? What questions do we still need to ask Jim about standardization and automation on the data side? Maybe less so on the standardization, but going back to the point of collecting data and almost the next step, which is then analyzing processing and so like drawing conclusions on that data. I wanted to ask you, Jim, in terms of like expertise or how you generally deal with customers, because I've seen both sides of the story. And what I mean by that is in one instance, the contractor consultant comes in, pulls the data out, and then it's given to the end user. Like here's a data lake, whatever. There's many acronyms nowadays in the, in the industrial space, like data swamp, data lake, unified namespace, whatever that may be. And here you go, like end user, now you're left to draw conclusions from this versus having a team with expertise and an understanding of data and process that can then decipher, analyze, and as you said, also to make decisions on, are we having enough, let's say like accuracy, let's go adjust this. And then like next week, we have enough data to make a decision. Like how does that maybe dynamic play out in your conversations and also I guess from the end user standpoint, what do you think the ideal version of that is? Should they be given all the reins to make all the decisions themselves? Should they involve a separate team? What does that generally look like? I can tell you how we go about things because I think we're relatively unique in how we approach customers, right? It's all their data. We take all their data and we craft it in such a way and present it to them to where it tells them a story. I learned that through Cole Nussbaumer Naflick's storytelling with data, because I was very guilty of coming from an engineering background. I just threw everything on the screen. Here's everything you're ever going to want to know. And then they have no idea what is it you're trying to actually tell me. What we really try to do is think about, all right, what is it you're trying to understand about your process, about your equipment, about your plant? And how can we roll up all this raw data into some kind of information that you can take action on? I know this reactor is struggling with cycle time and it's because of this, right? I, we've got to present a solution in such a way that they can see that. And sometimes that's just in, if we're working in the Pi system, it's just in Pi Vision. It's a, a real time updating graphic with some metrics on it. Sometimes the real story is you need to take a year or two's worth of data and slice and dice it in Power BI or Tableau to find out what are some of the root causes of it. What we try to do is we, I always tell my people, try to look at everything like you're the end user, like you're the audience, right? If you're talking to an engineer over a particular process and they're responsible for making that process run as efficiently as possible, understand what does that mean to them? What do they need to look at? How can you present that to them in such a way that they can do that? If it's a plant manager or a director or something like that, they don't want all that detail that the engineer wanted, right? They need some more high level kind of KPIs that show them here's where things are going and here's where maybe we're struggling. And I tell like a plant manager, like I, I walked into a paper company facility and I sat through their morning meetings the plant-wide one and each individual areas meetings just to see what they talked about. It was about what I expected in a lot of ways. And in some ways it wasn't, 
But in every case, you had a super detailed pie graphic of a lot of stuff. And everybody in the room's picking out their little individual numbers and KPIs. Yeah, what about this? What about that? What about that? And I'm sitting here, if you guys are all looking at some of the same things, like, why are you looking at this page that's got 500 numbers on it? There's probably 20 that you care about. And then you're drilling to another page that probably has a few. And then another page that has a few. Let's put them all on one and how they relate to each other and turn them red if they're bad. So then you're like, okay, pulp mill's having a problem. Click. And then you drill into the details of the pulp mill. This is red. Okay, what's going on there? And instead, they spend too much time like trying to process everything. And so how we always teach my people and talk to my people about is if you're that plant manager, you're the mill manager, how do I need to see this information in such a way that I don't have to hunt and pick it all out of 50 screens? What is it that you need? And sometimes you just have to ask the question, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, Mr. Like I asked the mill manager, I said, what is it that keeps you up at night? Which is the standard consultant question, right? It's probably a stupid question in all honesty. But he said, well, not necessarily what keeps me up at night, but like what I look at in the morning is our mill in balance. Now they have, they're a single line mill. Chips come in to the digester, go all the way through the fiber line, the paper machine. It's all one line, right? Where a lot of mills have two or three digesters, two or three paper machines. Like there's a bunch of ways through the plant or through the mill. This is a single line. And so you said, I want to know if, is the pulp mill outrunning the paper machine? Is our liquor cycle not keeping up with the digester? Those are the kind of things I really worry about. And that's what I'm trying to get an assessment of when I get in, get up in the morning or before I even get to the mill, I'm trying to get that information. Well, I'm like, how do you do it now? I go to this page and I look at this and I go to that page and look at that. And then I go over here and then I go over here. I'm like, you got to go to four or five different places and figure it out in your head. Is this imbalance with that? Shouldn't it just all be on one page simply? And so what we're building for him is through, we're building some analytics and some calculations that kind of tell him if he's in the right spot, but a simple thing he can pull up on his phone. Literally the display is going to be super simple that he can pull up on his phone and say, is the mill imbalance right now? And that's where they start their, mill me their morning meeting at. What can they, curiosity on the process side, what can they ad adjust to rebalance the mill? Is, is there like an action? Yeah, item you can slow, can if the digester is running slower and then you have to slow the paper machine down, right? Because you're going to run out of pulp and then you have to shut okay. the machine down. Or if the liquor cycle is running great, so the recovery cycle is running great, now I don't have anywhere to put all my the cooking liquors that I've recovered. Because I'm out running how fast the digester can use it. Those are the kind of things that they want to try to avoid. And that, that happens a lot in other plants too. Food plants, that's a big deal, right? Because you have multiple different processes, right? And if one outruns the other, so I don't have anywhere to store all this batter for my waffles that I'm making. Or I don't have places to store all this ice cream mix that I'm going to make ice cream bars out of. Or, hey, I'm running 600 counts a minute on this line, but the ice cream mix isn't keeping up with me. So now I'm having to slow down. And so keeping things in balance, and I think building a, a set of metrics for the customer where they can see that, 
easily, quickly. Things are all the grayscale, and except for this one thing that's turned red on the screen. Oh, what's going on with that? They should be able to look at a dashboard and in just a few seconds understand where the issues are. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that the more visibility they have and the more, as you said, like filtered visibility, it's not, it's not just raw data thrown at them. Oh, yeah. It certainly makes the decision process a lot simpler. And we as, um, we as engineers love to throw raw data at people and expect people to interpret it the same way we do. So we're all guilty. Hey, I think we can appreciate the difficulty it takes to get that data. So sometimes we're just excited to we're excited to present anything right here here's a trend and you're like <laughs> what is this i'm like yeah. i don't want I, I think that was a really good point i think to, to vlad's point i think sometimes it can certainly be difficult to get data but to, to jim's point understanding the, the target customer be it the mill manager be it someone else and understanding what their pain points are if you can quickly allow them to see hey we're running well or we're running poorly then that alleviates so much stress from them. They almost exclusively don't care the amount of time and effort it took to get that single screen. But lots of times that alleviates their pain points. They can see the contextual value of data. And then seeing the contextual value of data allows you to hopefully go do that for a bunch of different departments. But that is certainly more difficult and much more bespoke than it is just going and collecting raw digester data and right. saying this is how the digester data is running versus the 12 seasons versus the temperature versus all of the other information that you pull in at any different facility. So well, I, I think that is a very good point. I'll tell you another story out of the paper industry. I heard one of the business unit managers literally sleeps with his cell phone right here so that he doesn't miss a text from the mill. If he gets up in the middle of the night, he goes in his office where he has two pie screens pulled up at all times, showing him how his area is running. And he sleeps the rest of the night on the couch with one eye open. That's no way to live, right? That's no way to live. And so why is that happening, right? You think in the old days, you couldn't always see exactly what was going on and where problems may be around the corner, right? There's no excuse for that today. We have all of that. They have all the data, right? It's all there. It's just not into information where people below him can look at the, look at it and say, oh, we have this upset condition. Oh, here's what we should do without having to call or text him. And that's, that's the thing we're really... I don't know that trip and a couple of people I've talked to since then is we really have to change up like how we present things to operators and operations management so that they can make good decisions. Cause we have a lot less experience out there running our equipment and our processes today than what we've been used to. So they don't always know, they haven't always seen all the different upset conditions that may happen and they may not always make the right decision. And then they crash everything. And then that crashes the whole mill because they make the wrong call. And so that's why the guy sleeps like this, right? Is so if someone, he doesn't want someone crashing the whole mill, Hey, text or call me. Don't care what the hour is. I think we, this is something like we're taking this challenge on is how do we better present the information to those who are working at the plant at all times, not just to the mill manager, mill balance, right? 
but it's like a bell's working on a thing for that plant where understanding like when one thing's out running the other and stuff like that, what should I do without having to call the mill manager or the business unit manager, the operator can see, Oh, I'm out running these guys. Oh, I probably ought to slow back a little and Oh, they sped up. Okay. I can speed back up and they understand they have little notes on the screen that say, yeah. Hey, you can raise your rate. You want to get to this goal rate. This is where we want to be. And everybody's on the same page. Yep. We want to be here and it, it can foster some communication instead of this. Absolutely. Right? And, and in my experience, I think that's very important. And it will only get more important because we have lost much of our very experienced second and third shift operators because very few people want to go run, especially third shift, their entire life. And so you no longer have people with, I don't know, five or 10 or 30 years of experience. Yep. And so it's the middle of the night when we always have these problems. <laughs> and most of the places that I work with, anytime we've got a crash or anytime in theory, everyone blames third shift for getting everything out of whack. First shift has to go spend the first couple of hours of their shift going to reset everything to try to get everything up and running. It's generally running well by the time they hand over the second shift. And many times they come in on first shift and it's those same issues. And this is why they often rotate shifts, right? They work 12 hours. They work four on three off, three on four off, stuff like that. Yeah. And then they flip nights to days so that they can cross-pollinate, which also then makes it hard when you're doing things where you're trying to figure out <laughs> by which shift and who did this. Yeah. And oh, Fred was covering for John on that one. And yeah, he, he crashed it, but crew C took the blame, right? Yep. And so it, it's also not a way to live. No, it's, it's, it's a difficult way to live. It, it, it is tough. But the thing is, if I want us to be able to standardize how we present certain information to front-end supervisors and managers and even operators so that they can make good decisions. And how can we take that from a plant to another, one plant in an organization to another plant that's very similar, but different? How can we take a standardized approach? Because like I, I watched one company that I thought got way too wound up in how they standardized everything. Like it got so complex that nobody wanted to use the system. Like I understood what they were getting at and there was some good out of it, but they just took it to the same degree. Literally we work with another integrator and it was funny, they're one of the majors. And I was talking to the engineer that, that wrote the spec and the original spec was like 10 or 12 pages and it turned into 120. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much, but no one's going to read 120 pages and follow all of that. Right. So you have to have some kind of guidelines that steer you that these are things we're not going to compromise. These are the things that really matter to us. And we're going to do the same way every time. And then you can have some creativity after that. And they were really trying to get that right. And there's definitely some good things that came out of it for them as a business, but I think it, in a lot of ways, it was so complex that a lot of the end users didn't really want to use it. And that's something you have to be really careful of too. As engineers, like we don't mind necessarily complexity, especially if we understand it. And then you look at, you give it to somebody and it's here, follow this path. Just follow that and you'll be good. And for those of you that can't see it, I just scribbled on my 
pad back and forth. And it's, yeah, just follow that. It's crystal clear to me. Like I did it all, but to somebody who's never seen it at all, that's what it looks like to them. And that's the challenge, right? I got what they were trying to do. I don't know that they executed that the way they wanted to. Absolutely. And I would like to say, Jim, you might be the ultimate video podcast guest because not only do you do the thing, but then you do, you describe the thing for the listeners on the podcast side. So from us to you and them to you, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I, it's funny because I watch a lot of podcasts and listen to a lot of podcasts and the good ones do that. They'll say, Hey, I, I realize that not everybody's on YouTube or rumble or whatever the, or Spotify and watching video. Like you may be driving and just listening to the audio, right? So yeah. here's what is up on the screen right now. Like Absolutely. they're showing a video of something and that's like an important thing. So yeah, that's where that comes from. No. And thank you for that. I, and th this has been an amazing conversation. I have prepared you for this next question. You know that I always like to ask people to go ahead and predict the future. So I want to know where you think that the future of either standardization of data or all of this is going to go. What do you think the next handful of years is going to be? Ooh, I think the landscape's going to change drastically in the next 10 years. I think one of the things I actually am kind of thinking is going to happen now that OSI soft's been bought, I think the market's going to get a little more fragmented. I think there are going to be some people that get fed up. They just don't want to go that way, that, that Aviva wants to take it. Wrong or indifferent, I just think that's going to happen. For all my Aviva folks out there, sorry, I just think that's going to happen. I think you guys know it too. And by the same token, there's going to be some that really standardize on their stuff, right? But it's going to get a lot more fragmented. Watching a company like Flow, and there's some others that are working in this space that kind of work on that intermediate layer where Hey, I can build my standard data model. I can build a hierarchy. I can build on my calculations. I can build on my events. Now, all of a sudden, all I need is a good day, time series database to feed that. And they've built some visualizations. We're seeing our friends over at IOTA, that bunch of Seek and X, XSeq and XOSI soft people have come up with a web-based visualization tool. I see it where it used to be like, I bought Pi and I used Pi, the data archive. I used AF, I used PyVision or process book, or I may have thrown a different like visualization layer. A lot of people went like, especially in the paper industry, went to Parkview because they built a lot of very specific things. I think you're going to see more of that where the time series data versus the data modeling versus the visualization layer is actually going to fragment. I think it's actually, you may, instead of going with one solution, like a Pi system, you may pick and choose different components and can plug and play them because certainly the time series data can be moved rather easily, migrated from system to system, the calculations, that's gonna be a little trickier, but very likely it can be. And then on the visualization side. I think that'll be able to be ported too. So I think it's going to be more of like a modular system and more of a plug and play system than what we've seen. I think, I think that's the way, I think that's the way it's going to go. I would be surprised if it doesn't go that way. Interesting. So, I think that if nothing else, we can probably all agree here that more options are only better for the people trying to use those types of technologies in the field. Yeah. And honestly, that kind of hurts me a little bit too, because 
I sold Pi for a couple of years and that's what we've been working on. It pains me to say what I just said. I, I don't want anybody like who've known me freak out, but I, I just, it pains me to say that, but I just see that happening. I'm preparing us for that to happen. Just the conversations I'm having with customers, they're already thinking about it. And I don't know that there are viable options. And I think now there's starting to be some viable options of other ways that you can go about some of the things you've been used to doing. Absolutely. I think that the future will be, certainly be interesting. And I think more and more people, both in the kind of integration service provider space, as well as in the end user space are going to continue to want new or at least better and more ways to go ahead and visualize and contextualize that data. And the future will be very much for the people that can help do that either on the software side or on the service provider side. And, so I, I would certainly and I, agree. And I, don't, and I don't really see like the three hyperscalers really playing a part in any of this, either Google, AWS, Amazon, or Microsoft. Yep. I don't think they get it, nor do they have the patience to play in this market. It's going to be specialized people who've come from this industry. You look at somebody I haven't mentioned, like somebody like the folks at Highbyte, like John came from, and I'm trying to remember the, there's three of them that founded it. They all came from Kepware. They came from an industrial background. The people from IOTA came from OSI Soft and Seek. These people have come from a legacy of working in industry. Yep. And I think what people, that's where the people who are going to succeed, have that background. And they're just like, I need to, when you look at the people from Canary, the people from data park, they all have that pedigree. They all have that background. That's where the wins are going to come from. And that's given that we've seen the upset in the market now. There's an upset in the force. That's what I think is going to be the scramble. I would agree with that. I think that we've probably all seen different solutions and people trying to come into the industry thinking it's going to be very easy to disrupt the industry without the industrial knowledge. I'm not sure I've not seen every single one of them struggle without any sort of industrial background for all of the reasons that yeah. you just that you just provided. Thank you, Jim. You know that we like to ask for book recommendations, and you provided us with a bunch of different book recommendations <laughs> over the years. But you said you've got at least one new book recommendation that uh, you can give us today. Yeah. So I was joking around with the guys off camera. I'll at least say this. So I've been down this rabbit hole of biblical giants lately, but I'm not going to recommend because I know not everybody likes that kind of stuff. I'm going to recommend something more on the business side, but that's the rabbit hole I'm chasing these days. And it's been fun. It's been, a, it's been an interesting journey. That's actually surprising, but the one I'm going to recommend is, and this was actually recommended by my financial advisor, Marcus Young, and that's from Ray Dalio. It's, it's fairly new principles for dealing with the changing world order, why nations succeed and fail. And in that he's really talking about how nations he's really gone and done study of the rise and fall of great nations and their fiat currency or their gold-backed or commodity-backed currencies and how they've evolved and then how we have the political divisions and all these kind of things, right? All these things that we see happening, not just in the States, but other places. He really talks about that. And the reason why I really read that book and I'm not, I have not finished with it, I'm probably about halfway through it. And then I was like, ooh, giants. But what I have learned is 
there's a repetitive pattern and there are definitely things changing. And we as like business owners and even I know Vlad was talking about just personal journey here, right? We have to find ways to protect ourselves with what potentially could be coming. And that's, I think we all have to have a better understanding of finances and what's really happening, how the Fed actually works. It's probably not what you think at first. And it's a little shocking and it just, it helps you prepare your mind for what could be coming. And so I highly recommend it. I think he did a really good job in his research. Do I agree with everything he says? No, but that's okay. I don't agree with, I don't 100% agree with pretty much anybody and that's okay. And that's something we've forgotten as a, as a society these days. It's, oh, you don't 100% agree with me. You must hate me. Like, no, I don't hate you. It's just, I happen to disagree. I have a different set of experiences in life or a different set of beliefs that don't line up with yours. That doesn't mean I hate you. And I think we've forgotten that. And I think he, he talks a little bit about that in the book and that's a problem. That's going to be a problem for our financial system and how we recover. Absolutely. No, I think very interesting book recommendations there. I look forward to the next time that you come on, Jim, we can go compare these book recommendations to, to what you are reading and in a couple of months or a hundred episodes. There is no telling, first, there is there no is telling no te what I'll be into then because I've gone down some weird rabbit holes the last three years since Absolutely. COVID. So continuing on that, but we love to ask for some career advice. And, and I guess I know that you, the industrial insight team is growing. And so <laughs> I know that you certainly, I guess you have probably mentored and worked with a bunch of younger engineers for at yep. least as long, if not longer than I've known you. Coming from maybe a younger engineer perspective, looking to get in or continue to move up on the data side of the business, what is, what is your best career advice for them? Not necessarily to necessarily work with us, but one thing I think is happening and needs to change is we need craftspeople still. And that doesn't mean you go work in a trade, like going to be an electrician or welder or whatever. I'm saying whatever it is you do, we need people who are great and who are experts at that thing. Whether it's you want to be a PLC programmer, really good at visual design for HMIs, networking, teaching, like I think about Tim Wilburn teaching, Josh Bar Barghisi, is that his last name? Like he's a networking guru. Absolutely. Like those guys know their craft, like Vlad, because he teaches a lot too. Like he knows his craft. And we don't have enough people who are doing that. They just want to move around and experience everything and guilty. If you look at my career trajectory, yep. six years, six years, six years, I've been in industrial insight six years, but guess what? I'm going to be here longer than that. This is my retirement project, but we need people who are craftsmen at things, right? We're losing like experts. If I'm looking at international paper, like just mm -hmm. as a, for instance, right. And I'm not saying this about them. I'm just saying, I'll pick on them, right? Yep. <clears throat> Let's say they've got 10 digester experts. They're all 50 plus. Oh yeah. Where's the up and coming 25, 30 year old who's going to fill those shoes and be okay filling those shoes. I want to be really great at understanding how a K-Mir digester works for the rest of my career. Like we're missing craftspeople 
who really understand and really are experts at what they do. So my advice to people is don't be afraid of doing that. That's okay. Are you going to make as much money? Maybe not. You may be a lot happier. So don't turn your back on that. And there's just pro probably even some people on here who, and I've told my boys this, don't be afraid of the trades. We're going to need them. Too many people turn their back on them and say, no, I got to have a four-year degree. Don't neglect the trades. All right. I think th those are really good comments, Jim. I guess the only comment slash counterpoint that I would like to make is that, and you and I have had this conversation, is that I think we need, especially end users, to make people want, make people feel like they can go spend the next 40 years of their career being the digester expert as opposed to, yes, exactly. And, and I think that we absolutely need craftspeople willing to devote their career or a chunk of their career to the thing that they're doing. But on the counterpoint, we need to go make people want to do that. We need to go make- We need to reward people. it. Yes, absolutely. I, yeah. I would certainly agree with that. And then the last question for you, Jim, is who should reach out? Industrial Insight is your company. I, I, are you guys hiring? Are you looking for new clients? What sort of conversations do you want to have? How can our platform and community help you? So we're always looking for new clients. We like to diversify our, our portfolio, right? So we've had a lot of new logos this year, which is great. We've diversified industries. So we've done work in paper chemicals, oil and gas, power, food I'm trying to think i'm probably missing one but we're talking to a pharma customer here next week i'm talking to we talked to some water wastewater people but for us we're always looking for clients like i said good ones that really want to go become a data-driven organization and really change up how they're doing things as we expand yes we're always looking for people for down the line and here's the thing I always tell everybody is you don't have to be an expert in what we do already. I hired Philip Babb last year and he was a petroleum engineer, but he had been working with data some and had done some little bit of Python code and stuff like that. Been doing a bunch of stuff in Excel, trying to visualize things and understand what was going on. And he loved to solve puzzles, right? He had never seen a Pi system. He couldn't even spell Pi. He would have spelled it P-I-E, right? He wouldn't have known what AF was, right? He's phenomenal. Like I just released a video today where he figured out how to do a variable speed pump curve, the XY plot for it in a, an AF and Pi Vision. That's awesome. None of us had figured that out. And he just kept chipping away and Katie helped him and I helped him and Ben helped him here and there, but he's the one that figured it out. And yes, I'm always looking for people like that, but not at the moment. I think we're okay staffing wise, but I'm always looking for people down the road. Absolutely. No. Jim, this has been amazing. As I said at the beginning, thank you for coming to join us. You're one of those people that we could certainly <laughs> talk to every week, uh, but that would, that would almost you wouldn't be want to do that. You and I have had conversations every week for multiple years at a time. So that would not be a problem. Our listeners maybe would, would get tired of the weeds between the three of us, but this has been awesome. Everyone, thank you for joining us. Thank you to Siemens for sponsoring standardization and automation. If you guys are watching live, please make sure that you're connected with Jim and Vlad and myself. Please follow Manufacturing Hub on LinkedIn and YouTube and basically everywhere else that you can go and do that. And if you haven't followed Solus PLC on YouTube, please go follow Solus PLC on YouTube. I'm telling Vlad. Yeah, Vlad, Vlad does a great job. I will tell you that for a fact. A absolutely. Vlad has been notoriously quiet for the last 15 minutes. So please He's still mad at me over the shoot the engineer comment. 
He is. You, 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 and for all of our podcast listeners, before I ask you to like and subscribe, please note that there are like flames and like steam coming off of Vlad's head. I, I, Kimmy almost needed to come just douse him with water because the house is now 60 degrees C warmer than it was. But no, if you guys are listening in podcast form, please feel free to go follow along, rate us five stars everywhere you can do. I have found that if I ask people to subscribe, Jim, people like and subscribe and more people well, listen to us. Hey, guess what? Industrial Insight has a YouTube channel. Just released a video yep. today and subscribe there too. I'm terrible at asking people to do that, but I watch a lot of YouTube and everybody like in the first three minutes is like, subscribe if you like this content. I don't know if I like it yet or not, <laughs> but I'll give you a Absolutely. It, but it, no, does help. Uh, it does help push it out. Thank you to Jim. Thank you to everyone else. We will see everyone next Wednesday live and next Thursday in your earbuds. Until then, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks.